so much of how mental health has been treated historically has been to focus on the symptoms that people have experienced and then try and manage those symptoms or eradicate those symptoms. And so it doesn't really address the, the core wounds, like why we become unwell. And we become unwell because we experience distressing life events. And that's what trauma is. And the question isn't whether we have trauma. We all have trauma. It's the nature of being human. We experience difficult life events. The key thing is, what are the tools that we have to cope with those life events when they happen, which they will do. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Emmy Brunner. Emmy is a master of many. She's a psychotherapist, personal empowerment and transformation coach, hypnotherapist, CEO of the Recover Clinic in London, and a best-selling author. As a teenager, Emmy suffered from anorexia and had a tendency to self-harm. It led her into a series of abusive relationships until she had a baby and realized something had to change. Emmy then left her partner and worked hard at improving her life for herself and her daughter. Realizing she'd created a valuable toolkit for herself, she decided to train as a psychotherapist and to set up the Recover Clinic. Emmy specializes in helping people recover from anxiety, eating disorders and depression. And in today's episode, we talk about how to have a better relationship with ourselves, how to break free from your own rules and the holistic approach to treatment, where we can take into account both the mind and the body. Emmy's ongoing mission is to help people heal, live a joyful life and to overcome their limiting beliefs. And I can't wait for you to listen to this incredibly powerful conversation. I would love you to start by talking us through your analogy of the girl and the hog. So I think that's really helpful for the listeners. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's, I think for me, it just really sums up kind of how best to heal for anybody. But the story goes that person's walking down the street and they fall into a hole and they can't get out and they're calling for help and a doctor walks by and throws down a prescription and they're like great I'm still stuck in the hole and then a holy man walks past and they're shouting for help and the holy man's like say your prayers and they're like great I will but I'm stuck in this hole and then a friend walks down the street and jumps in the hole with them and they say what are you doing now we're both stuck in this hole and they're like yeah but I've been here before and I know how to get out And for me, that just sums up everything about what it is to heal, that by sharing our experiences, that we can help other people find their way, essentially. And I think that's why, even as a clinician, I'm so open about my own experiences and my own journey, because that's what's helped me. I found that really helpful, hearing other people's stories of recovery. 
So, Emmy, will you talk us through your own struggles and how they manifest themselves essentially and when you had that sort of light bulb moment and what then inspired you to go into becoming a therapist? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. <laughs> I think just growing up in an environment that was really unstable and feeling deeply insecure but really not having a sense of why I felt like that and just feeling that I was somehow defective or damaged in some way and not really understanding how the experiences that I'd had had impacted me and shaped the way that I saw the world and so for years I just bumbled along um, harming myself either through developing eating disorder behaviors or directly self-harming um, and having really abusive relationships with people and I think what drove me to be a therapist honestly was probably initially just some sort of deep-rooted codependency where I felt like I needed to take care of other people and to be completely honest it wasn't driven from a, a healthier place than that but I think what happened through helping other people was that I began to heal myself and I read a lot I didn't have money for a therapist I didn't have money to go to a clinic so I just relied on listening to people um, now on podcasts and things I still listen to everything that I can and trying sort of garner wisdom from people who've had either similar experiences to me or different exposures to things that they've learned things from or gained insight from and from that I started to gain some context for my experience and came to understand that through the traumas that I'd experienced I'd become damaged but that I was able to heal and also seeing people heal around me initially just in private practice working as a clinician seeing people be so brave and be so willing to take risks and to be introspective and look at the stuff that was hard to look at was so inspiring for me as well to become braver and to do the same. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, I think being surrounded by a healing community and being yeah. sort of lifted up by them and seeing that it is possible is a massive game changer. Yeah, it's why I then set up the clinic because working in private practice was one thing, but what I came to realise when I started running groups is that as soon as you put people in a room together... They started sharing their experiences. It was completely transformational and accelerated their healing. Um, there was something about just being around other people in community and being willing to be brave together. Of course, there's kind of safety in numbers, isn't there? And we, and so that became the model for how we worked with people was to try and get them into groups, to try and get them to share. And it diluted so much of the shame that people experience. It diluted my own shame massively as well. Yeah, creating that safe space um, where there's no judgment, um, which is often so deep-seated in, mm -hmm. in us, the sort of judgment and shame, which I think is just crippling and makes it so hard to heal when you can't move away from that and really detach from those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about the Recover Clinic more because that's obviously a huge part of your journey and it's a massive mm -hmm. you know, community of people. But um, you talk a lot about trauma and kind of I think it's one of your specialist areas. So I'd just love for you to unpack like what is trauma and why is it so integral to the development of mental health issues for some people and not others? So much of how mental health has been treated historically has been to focus on the symptoms that people have experienced and then try and manage those symptoms or eradicate those symptoms. And so it doesn't really address like the core wounds, like why we become unwell. And we become unwell because we experience distressing life events. And that's what trauma is. 
And the question isn't whether we have trauma, we all have trauma, it's the nature of being human, we experience difficult life events that distress us throughout our lives. The key thing is, what are the tools that we have to cope with those life events when they happen, which they will do. And those tools that we have can be great and helpful and allow us to share and be open and seek support and grieve and process or they can shut us down and they can isolate us or for example eating disorders it's a response to trauma it's a way of trying to cope and manage distressing emotions and pain and the same for addiction so I think giving people these diagnosis and kind of stamping a label on them that they then are told they're going to have to live with and manage for the rest of their lives I just I don't agree with I don't think it has to be that way I think that people can learn different ways of coping and then making their destructive tools redundant in a sense I mean I don't know whether you agree with this but I was sent to an inpatient program and I think it re-traumatized me and actually Mm -hmm. being surrounded by a community of people where a, it wasn't that conducive to healing. It was very punitive and the approach was kind of force feeding. Mm. You sit there until you finish mm-hmm. your meal. You often had a community of other girls just sort of glaring at mm. you. And often there was a lot of projection that went on. And I mean, the reaction from the community was just to basically ostracize you completely mm-hmm. from the kind of gang. Mm-hmm. And it was horrendous. And the staff there were really really punitive as well we were blind weighed sort of three times a week at 4am in the morning and you didn't know what day it was so it was kind of random even after all these years I find that so shocking and I've heard so many stories like that of people being forced to eat facing a wall or being punished using food as a tool for punishment which is madness when you think the whole point is you're trying to reframe how somebody feels about their body and food and to kind of weaponize it is just totally contradictory to that idea. I think as well, so many of those institutions have people working in them that aren't trained, that don't understand about trauma, that don't understand about what it is to help somebody here. And it it annoys me when I hear things like that. I just, and also it doesn't work. The failure rates and the readmission rates are over 90%. Force feeding people in environments like that is traumatic and for us we don't as long as somebody is medically well enough to be treated as an outpatient I will try and keep them as an outpatient rather than put them in a residential setting because so many of the things that we're trying to teach a person are how to cope in the world and so yes sometimes for somebody's physical well-being that's not possible um, but as soon as it is that's my primary choice to treat them in a community setting because it's how people get well and we have sustained recovery and not something that you're having to white knuckle every day, but something that is actually healed some core wound within. You know, we've hired, we, we have on our team today people that have been through the clinic who were very unwell, who are now in a position to support other people, completely free from destructive thoughts and behaviours. And they are miracles. They are examples of what's possible. Um, And I feel very fortunate myself as well that I'm in that place because I think I believed that something could be different. And I think working in a 12-step inpatient environment, which I did when I first trained as a clinician, I could see it didn't work. It was so evident to me it didn't work. And I just sat there thinking, why are these young people being told that they're addicts, being told that they are 
going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives, being completely disempowered. And actually they feel so invisible and they feel so unseen and unheard. And surely what we need to do is to understand their stories rather than just lumping in them together as a group of people who can't function. And by the way, if you can't function, this is what you're called. Didn't make sense to me. And so that's why I left and started the clinic. I didn't mean to start the clinic, really. I was just a one-to-one therapist, but it was so successful, the work that we were doing, that it just kind of blew up within a couple of years. And that was 17 years ago. So it's been an amazing journey since. Yeah, so talk us through the Recover Clinics. How do you ensure, what what fascinates me is how you get a community of girls in there who all want to recover because as soon as you've got a few who don't want to be there, it presumably really disturbs the dynamic of the group. Mm-hmm. So creating the communi- the right community of people there is probably crucial to the work that you do. I think it's about inviting somebody to work with you on helping them to feel better and I think what typically happens particularly with the eating disorder community is that they are pressured and forced into treatment often against their will and what that treatment is designed to do is to take away as quickly as possible their primary coping strategy which is their restriction or binging or purging whatever it is however it manifests and so that's terrifying to a person because actually what, what you fail to understand in that moment is that that is serving a purpose. It is there because somebody cannot cope with the world. And if you take it away from them, then you're going to cause acute distress. So one of the things I'll say to people when they come into treatment, I'll say, I don't need you to gain weight. I just Can you try not to lose weight? Can we just try and stabilise you where you are right now? And we will work with you and we will not force feed anybody. We will not drag somebody through it, kicking and screaming. I just won't do it. And I think as soon as you do that, you kind of align yourself with somebody and you're working with a person and you're not patronising them. You're not telling them that what they think or say or believe doesn't matter. The opposite, you're saying it really matters. And I really want to know and I really want to understand what your journey is and what your story is so that I can be best placed to support you. And suddenly it becomes about a person. And I think when you start, attacking somebody's symptoms in that way people with eating disorders typically will go in to protect them they will try and protect the eating disorder and they will try and um, collude with the eating disorder even more because they feel so threatened and so it becomes completely counterintuitive so even with the head of our nt marissa catherine carini is just so incredible at empowering people to make different choices about how they are viewing their relationship with food and it becomes about trying to nurture a relationship with it in a way that you would never have done before, that it becomes not about a battle that you're trying to win or a fight to be had. It's, it's about actually can we view this in a, in a completely different way, a way for you to get pleasure, to take comfort from food, to enjoy it, to, for it to become a social experience again. And it works. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible because, as you said, the rate of recovery in these inpatient clinics mm-hmm. is abysmal. Yeah. And it's a life-threatening mm-hmm. illness, disease, condition, whatever you want to call it. And it's also very deceitful. And I think what you've highlighted is that actually when you don't treat the weight, you treat the underlying issues and the trauma, suddenly for the first time they must feel heard. And in this concept of being treated like a person rather than what often happens in a family dynamic as well, you're sort of objectified as this mm-hmm. illness. It's mm-hmm. just 
you are this walking dysfunctional you are anorexic you are bulimic it's there's not many illnesses where you will be told that you are something it's quite incredible Mm. and yet with mental health we do that we we merge somebody's authentic identity with an illness with a with something that is happening to them and experience they're having which again i just think is really unhelpful because you're trying to get somebody to untangle from it to try and figure out who they are Mm. beyond that i was speaking to somebody this week who'd had residential treatment and she was saying that in there she was told she didn't know who she was this girl was 20 i was like who knows who they are in their 20 this is part of the journey it's about empowering somebody to be confident about going on a voyage of discovery to figure that out to enjoy it to not need that certainty to not need to know how things are going to play out but to actually let go and surrender and there's peace in that it's fascinating how you know it is it's something we don't really think about i am anorexic i am bulimic or you are this you are that if you have cancer it's not i am cancer or Exactly. I, I am Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's the first thing I say to somebody if they're talking like that. I'll be like, let's try and reframe how we're speaking about this in this moment. You're not anything. You are whatever your name is, and that is it. Mm. And let's just sit with that. And so, as a result, the groups and the community are so incredibly supportive because they're not being forced into something, and they're very willing to support one another and. We don't have the issues that you have in residential treatment in the same way of colluding or hiding or being deceitful because they don't feel like they're going to be punished if they're struggling. Yeah. So if you're struggling, then we're going to up your support Mm, rather than threaten to kick you out or tell you that you've lost a pound and therefore we can't work with you anymore. It just makes no sense for me to try and encourage an environment where people can foster a sense of trust in a, you know, a group of strangers, really, it's a very brave thing to do. Um, and then to punish them for having the very illness that we've brought them into treat. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So how does the programme work? If I was to, say, come to the Recover mm-hmm. Clinic, can anyone start at any time or do you...? Yeah, it's provided we've got space, yeah. And then we'll think about what your experiences have been before. I'm very mindful of that. I don't want to re-traumatise people by triggering them you know with something that maybe they've gone through before i'm really cautious of that so thinking about what they want to do as well it's always a good place to start thinking about what they want to do and then i'll say maybe let's compromise why don't this is what i think we should be doing and that that could be anything that could be five full days of treatment a week it could be three mornings a week it could be three evenings a week it really depends because we work with people who have different life commitments as well so for some people, they might be working full-time or studying full-time. We might liaise with their employers or their university to try and accommodate treatment so that they can remain in a job or at school if that's what they want to do. And it caters to all ages. Yeah, it does. And we have a, because we've got an online community there, it's really quite vast, actually, the, the different types of people that we work with because we don't just work with an eating disorder community. We work with people who are struggling with depression and anxiety. Um, For a lot of people as well, although they may have struggled with one thing in their sort of earlier years, illnesses change and things evolve. And it may be that some of your eating disorders symptoms have stabilised, but that you you just can't get past your anxiety. I think everybody that comes into treatment has anxiety 
high anxiety because I think they have unprocessed trauma and they feel scared a lot of the time. A big part of our job is to try and create a sense of safety and anchoring for them to even do the work. And I was going to ask you about the lying and the deceit because often, particularly when it comes to eating disorders, I know that I've often reached a stage in treatment where the lying and the deceit starts to kick in Mm because I want people to feel like I'm improving Mm -hmm. at a sort of greater rate than I am. And I sort of feel that I sense the impatience, often like we're sort of hypersensitive types and Mm -hmm. you sort of think people are getting fed up with you and historically when people have chucked you out of treatment or they've said, look, you know, this is as much as I can do and that sort of fear sets in and it's like, oh my God, um, I mean, you've, alluded to it saying that people don't tend to lie and the deceit side of it with particularly when it comes to eating disorders Mm. isn't so great Mm. but how do you sort of foster that openness and honesty do you think I think it's quite often when people initially come in particularly if they've had treatment experiences like that then they can automatically start behaving like that and it can take them time to adjust and to realize that they don't need to do that I think partly because it's not an environment where people are being threatened to be kicked out we're very willing to work with people particularly when they're really unwell and to be flexible about how we show up for them because I think what happens so often is that people come in with a story about how they see themselves and their place in the world and what can happen is that story just gets reenacted in treatment so exactly as you're saying the sense of being a burden or being you know a hassle to people that that won't be a story that exists in treatment that's old that's an old story and what happens is that that treatment environment then perpetuates that narrative and reinforces to you this belief that you have about yourself so as a clinician you really need to be skilled enough to help somebody kind of unearth what the script is i'll always ask my clients no matter who they are whether they're coming into clinical whether they're doing we run various sort of short-term digital programs as well I'll always ask them what's the story you're telling yourself about who you are and your place in the world because if you don't know that it's difficult to change things because then it becomes white knuckling it then it becomes I'm just going to try not to act out and that doesn't work or it works temporarily and it's excruciating and then you get caught in this cycle of feeling like you're letting everybody down you're letting yourself down and actually a lot of it's because you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing what's the story what's the story you're telling yourself about who you are and your place in the world when you can figure that out everything starts to make sense we need to gain context around our mental health because it's only when we can do that that we can become empowered to change things i'm thinking now how do you identify them with the the community at the recover clinic as sort of markers of success and progress because mm-hmm. if it's not about weight Clearly, for someone with an eating disorder, and if it's a restrictive eating disorder, they to be healthy and to be functioning mm-hmm. in the world, they do ultimately need to put on weight. Yeah. Now, if you've got someone who's sitting there, who's clearly severely like underweight, mm-hmm. they're not menstruating, mm-hmm. um, they're suffering from stress fractures, etc. How do you approach them and so gently encourage them to become healthier? It's the same process. The process for treating somebody with bulimia who's a stable weight is the same process for treating somebody with a restrictive eating disorder Mm. because the red herring is the eating disorder. It's a mistake to focus on that. What happens when you start to heal from within is that those things get better organically. Yes, you need support 
to help you maybe at mealtimes, maybe to reframe how you're thinking about food because so much of an eating disorder becomes habitual. You know, when we're in those patterns, we do the same things all the time. We find it really difficult to break out of patterns. So yes, you need help for that. But by healing that core wound, you are no longer motivated to harm yourself. We don't want to harm things that we love. Very easy to harm yourself when you're on starve yourself or not sleep properly or not drink enough or not rest when you need to, when you don't care for yourself or worse than that, when you hate yourself, you're motivated to harm yourself. So when that starts to shift, it's not so easy. I was listening to a client a couple of weeks ago who was saying they went to binge, which they would normally do. and There was something uncomfortable about it. They did it anyway, but there was something uncomfortable about it. They couldn't kind of just do it properly in the way that they would have done. They were too conscious. They were too awake. And uh, the next time they may not. And maybe it won't be next time. Maybe it'll be the time after. But those behaviours are on their way out, I'm telling you. And you need people to believe in you. You need, you really do need people around you who are singing to a different tune and saying it's possible and believing it's possible. We had a woman a couple of years ago who'd not been out of residential care for years. I mean, literally years. And when she was discharged, the head of her treatment team called me and said, well, we'll see her back in two weeks. She's never been able to be out of treatment for more than two weeks. I was like, okay. Well, we'll have a go. And she didn't go back into treatment, hasn't gone back into treatment. I hear from her every year where I'll get a picture of whatever she's doing, living her life. And it's amazing. But what was so important for her is we told her we thought it was possible. We told her that we believed in her and that actually there was another way. And because she started to believe it, it became her truth. Because our realities are just a manifestation of what we believe to be real. That's all it is. And so everything is dependent on our perspective. So if you can't believe that things are possible for you, then you, my God, you need a team around you who can do that for you until you can catch up. Yeah, and I think so often people who are addicts or have an eating disorder, suffer from depression, you know, I'm afraid it does often stem from a dysfunctional family environment mm -hmm. and often you, you know, you're the sticker that everything sticks to and mm -hmm. everyone else's crap gets la like loaded totally. onto you. It was really easy for me to be unwell in my family dynamic. It was appealing for them. They wouldn't know that, they wouldn't have that consciousness, but definitely it worked for everybody for me to be unwell yeah. um, because it meant no one had to look at themselves. We'll just focus on Emmy or we'll just focus on Pandora because, you know, she's the one who's ill. Therefore, she must be responsible for all this chaos around yeah, us Yeah, she's creating all this stress and drama. And actually what you are is a container for everybody else's trauma, projections, distress. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. 
Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. So often with people who clearly need to move away from their family dynamic, which can also often induce massive feelings of anxiety and there's sometimes separation anxiety, Mm -hmm. particularly with mothers and daughters. Yeah. How do you advise your clients to do that in a healthy way? I think it's about reframing what what that means and and it's different for everybody for some people it's just about setting boundaries and being able to manage those dynamics in a different way quite often what we don't realize is that those dynamics can only exist if we continue to play a certain role and as soon as we stop playing a certain role they can't continue anyway so even in close proximity they can't continue because we're not playing the game anymore And so when we become really educated about the dynamics that we're in, so I was constantly in rescuer in my family dynamic or victim, that was me. And so I went and built a career on rescuing people. That's what I did or what I thought I was doing at the time. And so as soon as I stopped being those things in those family dynamics, it couldn't continue to function in that way. It couldn't continue to function where everything was put on my door to sort out because I wasn't doing it anymore. And so it took some time for it to readjust, um, but it happened. It did happen and it would happen for anybody because you, you have to be part of it. And that's the thing that we can become empowered to understand is that in these dysfunctional dynamics, in these situations that cause us so much distress, we are the common denominator. We're there in all of them, showing up and taking part and making decisions and contributing. And that's not to blame anybody and certainly not even blame myself. It's about recognising that when you come to understand that, you can empower yourself to make a different decision and you can make different choices. I tell this story about this to my clients all the time about this date that I went on when I'd suddenly got on top of realising that I'd been in all these abusive relationships. And on this date, there were a couple of red flags and he didn't really do anything wrong. He said a couple of things. One of them was that he didn't like animals, which to me was a massive red flag. And the other one was something else. He was mumbling about work being a priority. And I just had this like ding, 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 ding. This is not good. This is not a good guy. This feels too familiar. And I had this whole kind of out of body experience on this day. He was just chatting and I just thought, what are you going to do? Are you going to do this all again and go in and be hurt and go into victim? And he'll be this horrible person that hurt you. And I found myself just getting up, getting my bag, getting my coat. And he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm going. And I just walked out. And he was so shocked because to him, we were having quite a nice time, I guess. But for me, it was such an empowering moment to do this silly, seemingly insignificant thing of walking out on a date. But it was me being so brave and me going, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm changing. I'm changing the story. And instead of always turning left for the first time I've turned right and that means I'm going somewhere different and I don't know what it's going to look like but I know it'll be different. And when I met my now husband I knew he must be good because I knew that I was treating myself well and that I could only attract somebody else who would also treat me well. Whereas when I tra- treated myself badly that's what I, that was the message that I put out to the world. This is how I treat myself and this is what I expect. And think I deserve from other people. I think so much of recovery is about giving yourself permission to treat yourself well and mm-hmm. to actually 
allow the goodness in the universe to come back to you and not Mm -hmm. sitting with that discomfort when it does happen because I think so often you're so used to being in that space of everything feels sort of horrible you're always in that the fight or flight mode and suddenly actually engaging your parasympathetic nervous system and being okay with just being yeah um, is very very empowering yeah but also very daunting and you don't have to earn it that's the thing you don't have to earn the right to treat yourself with love and kindness you are deserving of that because you're a human being and you are here and you are having a human experience and therefore you are deserving of love kindness and respect and i really believe that of anybody regardless of who they are or their experience you know i've met some many people over the years and people who've done some really shameful and distressing and disturbing behaviors and i think it's even more important in those moments to make sure that we are viewing those people with love, kindness and respect. Because as soon as we start to think that we are better than anybody else or that anybody else is better than us, we get out of alignment and we end up in some kind of funky place where things just aren't flowing. And to believe that you are worthy of those things because you're a human being is so humbling and grounding as well. So you'd encourage someone who says, Emmy, I'm terrified of the world what is there out mm-hmm. there for me? I don't know what I like. I've always been mm-hmm. a box ticker and I just feel totally overwhelmed and daunted yeah. by letting go of my eating disorder because it's, although it's my enemy now, it has also been my best friend yeah. and it's kept me sort of quote unquote safe for so mm-hmm. long. How would you talk them through that? I'd say we're going to find other things that are going to give you comfort. We're not just taking this away, we're giving you things too. We're going to give you things and you're not going to go out in the world and do that journey on your own. You've got me or you've got us and you're going to do it with us and we'll be there holding your hand and there will be a day when you don't need us anymore. And you've also spoken a lot about this unwell voice mm-hmm. in people's heads. Do you think that lasts beyond behavioural change and recovery and how does it get quieter? I think it's a process. I think f- so much of what we do with anything and you don't need to be suffering with any kind of acute mental health problem to to know what this is like but we engage heavily with our thoughts some we completely disregard and don't pay any attention to and some we pay acute attention to and we allow those thoughts to dictate our lives and our choices and that's fine if those thoughts are positive and celebratory and joy seeking and motivating but it's a real problem when they're not and I think it's the easiest way to think about that is almost like a well voice and an unwell voice. And the unwell voice is part ego, it's stories you've been told about yourself, it's experiences that you've had, it's a manifestation of all of those different things and it festers and it becomes very repetitive. So if you have the unwell voice, you'll be telling yourself the same negative things all, o- all the time, repeatedly. So for some people it might be going into a social setting and them feeling inadequate or worried about how they're going to be perceived and that might be it for them that's how it shows up for them and in other areas of their life they're able to function and so they don't pay too much attention to it and for some of us it can be so all-encompassing and pervasive that it just takes over every aspect of our lives so for me it was there in how I showed up in relationships how I showed up in work how I looked physically how God, how smart I was, just everything. It was constantly undermining and scrutinizing my behavior for flaws so that it could provide evidence to me of how undeserving and how loathsome I was. 
And to live with that is so exhausting and just depressing. It depresses us. We become so flat and down and unmotivated for life when we're living with something like that. It's like having the worst bully you ever met and having it in your head constantly. And so part of what we do is we try and ignore that voice. We try and uh, negotiate with it and we try and placate it. And as soon as we do that, we're giving it energy, always giving it energy. And so much of what we all do is focus our energy on what we don't want, what we're resisting. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we're worried about, worst case scenarios. And so that's getting all of our energy. So the biggest thing that we need to shift in any kind of healing journey or any just self-development really is knowing that you need to focus your attention on what you want, not on what you don't want. Um, because that's what becomes manifested in our world. Where our worlds are a manifestation of what we believe to be true and what we think about. So when we start to believe that actually we can develop a nurturing, compassionate relationship with ourselves, we can hear the unwell voice, but we're not reacting to it in the same way. It's not completely masterful or dictating all our choices and our decisions. And so I might have a thought that would be unpleasant, but I don't pay attention to it. You know, I'll always liken this to whenever you're on a train and you see that big red button and you think, I could press that big red button. You don't care about that thought. You don't worry about that thought. You just disregard it as one of the other billion thoughts you have every day. The unwell voice is honed in on your vulnerabilities, your story, until you pay attention to those thoughts. When you can come to understand that actually it doesn't mean anything unless you choose it to mean something. It is just another thought then you can create distance from it. When you come to understand even later that you are not your thoughts, that you are a spiritual being having a human experience, that this is my mind. We don't say I am my mind. We're like, it's something separate that we own. We come to understand that and we realise that actually what we need to do is try and live our lives governed by love, kindness and joy. And if we do that, guess what? Everything gets better. It's, none of this is rocket science. And I understand for so many people, it can feel so out of reach. And I know it's so much why I share my story, because I don't want people to think I'm just another person pepping them up about their mental health. I understand and I get it. But what you're doing isn't working. So you need to try something new, mm. you know, or if what you're doing isn't working, you need to try something new yeah. and just keep putting your one foot in front of the other because you're just not going to look back. Yeah, and the importance of baby steps. Totally, yeah. Not getting overwhelmed by these gargantuan changes sort of that are just unrealistic that you think are kind of going to be markers of your progress. In fact, it's just those tiny little victories. Yeah, it's just reframing all of that. I would say this is with rocks we build mountains. You know, everything comes from something. And what may seem insignificant is wildly significant. It's massively important and part of your transformation. Do you find when it comes to the food choices that your clients are making in the recover clinic that they they just naturally want to start venturing out more, fear foods become less fearful and they start to just actually get in touch with their intuition and start eating more intuitively? Yeah, generally we're working up to intuitive eating ultimately. That's what we all want to be able to do, but people can't do it when you've had a lifetime of disconnection and not paying attention to yourself. So I know we start off again this where it has to be so personal, thinking about what a person likes as a child maybe, 
you know, I think of, I can't remember if I've shared this ever publicly, but one of my like loveliest moments was the joy of a client that we got Cocoa Pops for because it was what she'd had as a kid and she hadn't allowed herself to have them for years. So that wasn't any kind of significant fear food or anything like that, but it was, it was connecting food and joy for the first time. And that was so powerful for her. Yeah, I mean, it is so antiquated the way that eating disorders are treated. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how this model that you've created, which is obviously so effective, is going to be able to be rolled out into more places and to get actually to the stage where it's offered in multiple cities and, and then hopefully around the world, because it does seem to be much more effective. I think that's why we, we have um, just developed an eating disorder workshop that people who maybe can't come into clinic or can't take part in clinic can do. It's a 12-week program. We're just doing a soft launch right now and, and it launches properly in September. And the reason that we've done that is to try and reach as many people as we can. The reason that we now operate in different c- countries over the world is to try and meet, reach as many people as we can. And that would be my dream, that people would understand this um, because also there's so much you can do, even if you haven't got resources, financial resources where you can't pay to see a clinician, so much you can do when you understand what the work is on your own. And so, so much of what we've done with this new program that launches in September is to really walk people through, actually, this is how you're going to get better and give them a formula to follow. And it works. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what we would take somebody through in clinic, albeit we can't be as specific with their particular journey but it's a pretty good second if you can't do that and it's far better than anything out there in my opinion so that will launch in september and mm-hmm. how do people act, do they access it online and they can access it all online and it's live sessions as well live q a so if you're struggling with something um you can either ask in the live session or if you can't attend live you just email us in your questions and we will respond to every single thing you're struggling with and give you solutions and answers. Great. And do you sign up for us a package or is it free? You could sign up for it as a package, but I'll always invite people if you're on a low income or if you're struggling, tell us mm-hmm. because if we can make it happen, we will. And uh, it's very affordable. I think for three months care, it's £2,000 for three months care. And to give you an idea for some of you who may not know, residential treatment's around £35,000 a month. And then how, and if someone wants to come to the Recover Clinic, how do they reach it? How do they find out about it? Yeah, they can come onto the website, which is therecoverclinic.co.uk. All of our uh, helplines are manned by qualified clinicians and recovery coaches. So even if you're not sure whether you need help or even if you're just exploring options, they will talk you through everything that's available with us, but they'll talk you through everything that's available everywhere. So they'll give you advice and guidance on whether you're considering residential treatment options or outpatient and we offer free assessments so if you want to have a clinical assessment then you can you book in and you have somebody spend some time with you go through your story your experiences and then they will tell you what it is that they think you need to do next and I just want to finish by asking you about now your life now Mm -hmm. and how you find being a mum and having a husband, was it ever something that you envisaged you'd be able to do? Like, definitely not. Definitely not being married would seem like the most ludicrous thing. And I didn't really know many people that were married that had nice relationships. It always seemed like a really stressful thing to even contemplate doing. 
but I have two daughters as well. And I was scared about becoming a mum when I had my first daughter because I was worried that it wasn't possible in some ways to have a positive relationship with your kids because I'd known such traumatic experiences. But it has just been the most like incredibly healing and wonderful experience. And it's challenging, of course. Being a parent is challenging for lots of reasons. But I think partly because of my previous experiences, it makes me so profoundly grateful. And my husband is just the most beautiful, wonderful person. And I really love him. And we have so much fun all the time. And we go, you know, we have challenges in terms of life events and difficult things that maybe be going on, but we feel so anchored to each other and the children. Um, we're just about to go away for a month. And somebody was talking to me about whether we were going to get the kids babysitters or kids clubs. And I was just like, oh my God, I love being with them. I love spending time with them. They remind me to be present and be mindful and to let go of what doesn't matter. The kids are brilliant for that. So yeah, it's been amazing. And I think for now, just the idea of being able to expand what we're doing professionally to reach more people, everything feels like, yeah, it's good. Life's good. And how do you look after yourself and ensure that you're staying on a kind of even keel? I'm I'm really less conscious of that now because I feel like something has shifted within me to such an extent that I don't have to be hypervigilant of it. But I am just naturally drawn to other people who have had their own healing journeys and I love hearing their stories and I find that they kind of rejuvenate my gratitude for my own stuff. And I love working with and coaching women who are a bit stuck. So not necessarily in crisis, but who are just maybe doing okay, but finding that they can be worn down by some of those old thoughts and behaviours. And that is a way of taking care of myself. I can't tell you how much I get from helping them. I love it. And I love seeing them. I run an empowerment group and we meet twice a month. And every time I see their little faces on Zoom, I'm just so excited to see them. (laughs) And they're all over the world. And I dork out every time. I cry often. I'm such a soaky with it all. But I love it. And it just lifts me up and makes me feel really good. So that's another way when anybody's struggling I'm always like be of service to someone else well Emmy you're a beacon of hope for so many of us I think you're what you're doing and what you've done is just unbelievable and thank you yeah my gratitude to people like you is just beyond words and thank you so much for coming today it really means the world thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the hurt to healing podcast I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our hurt to healing instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission.